There's 7.8 billion people living today on planet Earth. They reside in 196 countries. There are more than 650 ethnic groups, and they are speaking more than 6,500 known languages. Yet in the Bible, the Bible regards all of humanity in one of two categories. Either a person is in Christ or a person is outside of Christ. From God's perspective, that is the only distinction that carries significance. Throughout the Bible, the Lord addresses those that are in Christ versus those that are out of Christ in various ways. We read of the, those who believe versus those who don't believe. The redeemed versus the reprobate. The saved versus the lost. The sheep versus the goats. The wheat versus the weeds. The followers of the way versus followers of the world. Today we conclude our four-part sermon series entitled, Thank You, a study of 1 Thessalonians. And in our passage, the apostle gives another distinction, children of the day versus children of the night. And the contrast could be not any more stark, for they are as different as night and day. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to begin reading at verse 13. I want to conclude at chapter 5, verse 11. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, allow me to begin at verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. As the apostle comes to the end of this 
correspondence to the Thessalonians, he entertains some of their eschatological questions. Eschatology is the study of last things. And these believers were asking some very important questions of Paul. Questions like, does death separate believing loved ones from the Lord? When will Jesus come back? And when the day of the Lord happens, will we who are believers have to experience any of the wrath that will accompany the second coming? These were the questions that dominated the hearts and minds of the believers in the first century. And some of these and many others dominate the thoughts and the hearts and minds of 21st century believers. For most of us, many of us, wonder about that last day, that day of the Lord. When is Jesus coming? What's it going to be like? And so Paul writes these words to help us, to encourage us as we look forward to the second coming of Christ. So in verse 13, he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. That reference of falling asleep is a symbolic reference to death. We don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Friend, everything about our faith rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. We believe that Jesus died in our place. We believe that the grave could not hold him. For on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And because of the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then we know that he's coming back. And the apostle says that when he comes back, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So in other words, he's answering that first question. Can death separate believers from the Lord? And the answer is a resounding no. Elsewhere, Paul will say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death is not an accident. Death is a divine appointment. Death is not the end of the road. Death is a bend in the road. It was D.L. Moody who one day said, one day you'll hear that D.L. Moody has died. Don't you believe it? Not for one second. For in that moment, D.L. Moody will be more alive than ever before. Friend, death is not something for us to be feared because we know that if we are in Christ, Christ, our eternal life begins at the moment of faith, and death is just a relocation. It is just the fact that we are changing our address. It is one that is temporal here to one that is eternal there. And so we are absent from the body, and we are present with the Lord. The apostle continues in verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you, that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so it will be that we will be with the Lord forever. Friend, this is a cataclysmic, cosmic event. Can you visualize it with me? That there's coming a day in the not too distant future perhaps when Jesus literally, physically, and bodily will return, he will rip open the eastern sky. He will descend accompanied by all the saints that have died before. And he will come and rescue his church. That on that day, if you read 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians side by side, you know that on that day, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who 
are believers who have preceded us in death, that those who are dead in Christ, they will rise first. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the Lord Jesus will clothe their spirit with an eternal body. That what is raised is perishable, and in a moment it will become imperishable. What is raised from the grave is mortal, and it will be transformed into immortality. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Jesus will take that decaying body and make it an eternal body and clothe that eternal body that's fit for all time and eternity to dwell uh, with that spirit so that we will have an eternal body for all of the millennium to come. And what the Lord will do for the dead in Christ, he will then do for us who are still alive. For the dead in Christ will be raised first, then we who are still alive will be caught up, snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the Lord will take this body which is so decrepit and decaying, it's aging and it's getting older and older, and the effects of sin are more prominent and prominent upon my body and your body. All you got to do is look in the mirror and then look at some pictures of a few years ago, and you realize that things are changing in this old mortal body. But in a moment, Jesus will take this old flesh that is mortal and give us immortality, this which is perishing, and will give us something that is imperishable and what Jesus does for all of those who have gone on before us he will also do for us who are alive at the second coming there have been some who have read this passage instead of the apostle Paul see here's an example of where he made a mistake he said that he would be alive at the second coming of Christ and it's been 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't come back yet and the argument could be made for or against whether or not Paul actually believed that he would be alive on the day of resurrection, on the day of the Lord, the second coming. But we also could say that every generation has believed themselves to be the last generation. I mean, every generation to live over the last 2,000 years, at some point along the way, has believed themselves to be the last generation, where they have said, we will be alive when Jesus comes back. In fact, I dare say there are some of you listening to my voice, and you think to yourself, that great day is not too far from now. And so you think to yourself that, that I'm going to be alive when Jesus comes back. Maybe it could happen in 20 minutes. It could happen in 2,000 years. We don't know exactly. But every generation at some point believes themselves to be the last generation. And let's just be honest. There will be a generation that will be the last generation, right? And for that last generation, they will read these sacred words and it'll be so true, as true to them as it is true today, that there is coming a day when Jesus will return, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are still alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Can you imagine this sight and sound? Can you imagine this scene with me? It's accompanied by a loud command. The voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. It wasn't too many weeks ago that somebody in this faith family told me, Pastor, I am no longer looking at the signs. I am listening for the trumpet. Because I think it's closer and closer than ever before. But can you imagine with me? I mean, there's going to be a loud sound and a command and a voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and then we who are alive will be snatched up. That word snatched up or taken up is taken up by force. 
We understand this as the rapture, that in that moment we will be snatched up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's the very same word that describes Philip in Acts chapter 8. After he witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, he takes him down into the waters of baptism. And when that Ethiopian comes up out of the waters of baptism, Philip is taken away. He is snatched up by force. It's the very same word that the Apostle Paul will use in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about being taken up to the third heaven, taken up, snatched up to the highest heavens. It's the very same word. I gotta be honest with you that as a basketball boy from Kentucky who oftentimes suffered from being slim, slow, and pretty stationary, this imagery uh, of being snatched up into the heavens is a vertical leap that I've always wanted. I've always wanted the capacity to jump really high. And, and on this day, whenever this day happens, and, and the, the dead in Christ are raised first, then we who are left will be snatched up, snatched up by force. We'll meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with him forever. Remember the question that's at the background of this text. Can death? separate my loved one from the Lord? And the answer is no. And when Jesus comes back, will we experience any of that condemnation, any of the wrath of God? And the answer is no. We'll be snatched up. We'll be with the Lord forever. And Paul says we ought to encourage one another with these words. But you might remember that early on I asked the question, when is Jesus going to come back? Well, that's a question that was asked in the first century. It's still asked today in the 21st century. And beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul answers, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. The reason he didn't need to write was because he had no clue. <laughs> Nobody knows the days or the times. In fact, if anybody ever tells you a specific day or time, you need to run in the opposite direction because you're standing in front of a false prophet because nobody knows the exact day or time. The apostle says regarding days and times, we don't need to write to you. But we can tell you this, that the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, it'll be like a thief in the night. It'll happen like labor pains as they come upon a pregnant woman. Now those are two pretty graphic analogies, don't you think? And I think what the apostle is driving at is the second coming of Christ will be as shocking as a thief in the night. It'll be as sudden as labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. Now you live your life, you uh, live your days, you go to bed at night and you may think to yourself, now it's possible that a thief could break in tonight. I mean, it's possible. So you put on the security system, you check the doors, you make sure everything's locked, the lights are off. You, you just make sure everything's kind of battened down because you know it, it could happen. But if it ever did happen when a thief would break in, you'd be shocked. I mean, even though you think it possibly could happen one day, if it actually happened to you in the moment of it happening, you would be shocked and disoriented just a bit. And the apostle says that, that when Jesus comes back, it'll, it'll almost be shocking unto the world. And it'll be so sudden, as sudden as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, every lady who's given birth to a child, you realize that when those labor pains come with force, you know, sister, there ain't no turning back. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, 
what's about to happen is going to change everything forever, right? I mean, you're about to deliver a baby, and, and nobody's world is going to be the same afterwards. And the apostle says in the very same way that the return of Christ, it will be shocking, it will be sudden, it will come, and sister, brother, there ain't no turning back. Because once Jesus comes back, it will change life as we know it for everybody. So Jesus is coming back. Death cannot separate and sever our loved ones from the Lord. The return of Christ will be literal and physical and bodily. We don't know the days or the times, but, but we know that he is coming. The apostle never wanted you and me to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. So he spends the rest of the passage talking about who we are and how we act as in Christ. So if the contrast is those who are in Christ versus those who are outside of Christ, if the contrast is those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ, if that's the contrast, then, then, then we who are in Christ, we who know Christ, we have a unique identity. That's verses 4 and 5. We have a unique activity. That's verses 6, 7, and 8. And we have a unique destiny. That's verses 9, 10, and 11. So go with me to chapter 5, verse 4, where he speaks about this unique identity that we have in Christ. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Friend, if you know who you are, then you know how to act. Because your activity flows out of your identity. The second coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, it is a, it is a singular event but people will react to it in one of two perspectives. For those who are in Christ, the second coming is something that we welcome with joy that is unimaginable. And for those who are outside of Christ, we know that the second coming is something that is grieved because of destruction that is unavoidable. He made reference to that just a little bit earlier, when he talked about a thief coming in the night and labor pains on a pregnant woman, he said that this destruction will come on them suddenly and they will not escape. Notice he doesn't say that it will come upon us. No, our identity is in Christ. It will come upon them. It's not that we won't escape. It's that they won't escape. Who's the we and who's the they? The we... That's the people that are in Christ, the they, the them. That's the people that are outside of Christ. If you know your identity, then you know how you're supposed to behave and what you're supposed to do. Here, the apostle says that your identity is that you are in Christ. You are sons of the light. You're children of the day. If you know who you are, then you know how to behave. And who are you? If you are in Christ, you are a son of the light. You're a children. You are children of the day. This imagery of light and darkness, it, it goes all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Let me just hit a couple of places. It's the prophet Isaiah who declares that those groping in darkness have seen a great light. In John chapter 8, it is Jesus who says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will never grope in darkness. This analogy of light is the only metaphor that Jesus shares with you, his followers. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. 
this is our dominant characteristic. This is who we are. Elsewhere, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, but he never says, you are the bread of life. He says, I am the resurrection of life, but he never says, you are the resurrection of life. The only one that he shares with you is his imagery of light. As he is the light, so we are to be the light. As he has illuminated our spirits, so we're to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the light, and we are called to be the light. Here, Paul says, you are sons of the light. That's the biblical way of talking about a dominant characteristic. It's a dominant trait. Let me give you an example. The man named Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Why? Because encouragement was his dominant trait. James and John were identified as sons of thunder. Why? Because that zeal and passion for the Lord was their dominant trait. You remember how they got that nickname? Jesus and the boys went to a Samaritan village, and those Samaritans did not receive Jesus. They kicked them out. And James and John went to the master and said, Jesus, do you want us to torch this place because we would love to? We can call down fire from heaven. I don't know if they had the authority to do that. I don't know if they had the power to do it. But they said to Jesus, we are so zealous, we are so passionate for you that we will call down fire from heaven. And from that experience, this idea that they were sons of thunder, it stuck. Because that was their dominant trait. Here, Paul says, your dominant trait is that you are a son of the light. You're children of the day. That's who you are. And if you know who you are, then you know how to behave. This identification marker ought to be so core and central to who we are that it ought to be the first thing that comes to your mind when somebody asks you, who are you? And it ought to be the first thing that comes to other people's minds when they see you and somebody asks them, who is that? This is so central to who we are. We ought to be known as sons and daughters of the light. This is central to our identity. This is more fundamental than whether or not you are male or female, which, by the way, there are only two genders. This is more fundamental than whether you are black or white, whether you're Hispanic or Asian, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're American or Israeli, whether you root for the Todd or the Tigers, this identification that you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the light, this is so central to your identity that when somebody asks the question, who are you, that regardless, you say, I am in Christ. And my friend, I wonder, is this how you think of yourself? Is this the first thing that comes to your mind? When somebody asks you, who are you? Oftentimes we tell about our profession, what we do. We tell about uh, our activities, our hobbies, what we, what we like to do. We talk about all of our activity, but at the core of our identity is the fact that we are in Christ. And this influences and impacts everything that we do. When people read your post, when they interact with you, when they meet you on social media or when they meet you at the marketplace, is the first thing that other people know about you is that you are in Christ? It is so evident. It is so obvious by the way you carry yourself, by the way you talk, by the way you think, by what you do. Is it so apparent and obvious that this is the dominant trait of your existence? Who are you? I am 
a son of the light. I'm a child of the day, for I belong to Christ. Paul says if you are in Christ, you have a unique identity. But secondly, you have unique activity. Look with me at verses 6, 7, and 8. The apostle says, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Friend, our conduct reveals our character. I mean, if, if, we, if our identity is that we are in Christ, our activity ought to be Christ-like. Our conduct is revealed by our character. It's by the choices that we make. And we are in Christ and we ought to be Christ-like. I'm not telling you you have to be perfect. I know that godly people do ungodly things. You have done ungodly things. I have done ungodly things. I understand what Paul will say in Romans chapter 7. I do what I do not want to do. And what I don't want to do, that's exactly what I do. What a wretched man that I am. I get that. I understand. But still, the normal, overwhelming activity of our lives ought to be Christ-like. If we are in Christ, we ought to be Christ-like in our activity. So the apostle says we ought to be alert and controlled. That word alert, it means aware, awake. It's written in present tense. It communicates a continuous action. So beloved, regardless of how long you've been in Christ, you continue to be awake and aware and alert. Awake to the things of God, alert to the movement of God. That as God speaks, you listen. And as he prompts, you respond. You're awake and alert. You don't act like the people of the dark. They, they're asleep. They're asleep to God. They're asleep to the things of God. They do things that people do in darkness. They sleep. They get drunk. They're dependent on the spirits with a little s. We're dependent on the spirit with a big s. They're inebriated by the spirits, little s, and we are intoxicated by the spirit of God. Amen. So we live a life that is alert and controlled. It's the very same word that Paul used in the earlier passage when he says of your purity, you ought to control your body in ways that are holy and honorable. I made the argument last time that that word controlled is not really self-controlled, it is spirit-controlled, and I make the same argument today. It's translated in my text, self-controlled. I think it's more spirit-controlled because he is playing on the imagery of being inebriated at night by the spirits versus being intoxicated and controlled by the Spirit of God. So you and I live our lives in such a way that our activity is both alert and spirit-controlled. How do you know if somebody is awake, aware, alert? How do you know if somebody is controlled by the Spirit of God? Well, Paul answers that. This person puts on faith and love as a breastplate and puts on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, this is Paul's early attempts at the armor of God. He will fully flesh this out in Ephesians chapter 6. But in our passage, there are only two portions of the armor of God that he articulates. It's the breastplate and the helmet. And Paul says that a person who's awake and alert, one who is controlled by the Spirit, that person on a regular basis puts on faith and love as a breastplate. Once again, that phrase, put on, it's present tense. It's a continuous action. 
You do it on a daily basis, on a regular basis. You put on faith and love. Now that should sound familiar, especially if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks. Because when Timothy came back and gave a report about the Thessalonian believers, what did he say? He said they are growing in faith and love. And Paul applauds them for their faith and love. And I gave you a quotation from John Calvin who said in those two words, faith, love, you find the summation of true piety. Do you want to know what God expects from you? you want to know what God wants from you? He wants faith and love. For you to be a person who has faith in God, a person who demonstrates love for neighbor, that's what the Thessalonians did. That's what you and I ought to do. Paul says you put on faith and love as a breastplate. A breastplate was like a bulletproof jacket in our day. Even a skilled warrior, it didn't matter how skilled he was, he could fall prey to a well-placed arrow to the heart. So he would not go into battle without putting on the breastplate. And the breastplate went from about the collarbone all the way down below the waist. It protected all the vital organs, the intestines of that warrior so that he could go into battle and, 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 and endure some of the fiery darts of the enemy. It was believed in those days, if you think about it symbolically, that a person's thoughts originated in their gut, in, in their intestines, that, that a person was moved, they were shaken from the depth of who they were. And they were, it was believed that, 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 that emotions, that feelings came from the intestines. If you follow that analogy with me, then what Paul is saying is over all of your feelings, over all of the core of who you are, put on faith and love. Isn't that a good word for us today? Let your feelings be guarded by faith and love. Before you speak, before you type, before you interact, before you post, let everything be garnished and guarded by faith and love. Your faith in God, your love for other people. Wouldn't it be great if before we ever spoke, before we ever did anything, before we went into battle, and every day is a battle. I know the victory is already won, and the victory has been won by Christ, but every day is a battle. Can I get an amen? And before we go into the battle, wouldn't it be great for us to put over our feelings faith in God and love for others. That today, before I do anything, I'm going to have faith in God and love for others. Regardless of what somebody says to me, regardless of how I feel, I'm going to have faith in God and love for others. He says, put on faith and love as a breastplate. Then he also says to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. No skilled warrior would go into battle without a head covering. I don't care how advanced the warrior was. He was one fatal blow from the head to being knocked out. So he always wore a head covering. It covered his head so that he knew where the body should go. And Paul says, what covers you is the hope of salvation. I've told you before that the biblical word hope does not have a smidgen of doubt in it. Sometimes we speak of hope. I, I hope to get a good report from the doctor. I hope to get a good grade on the test. I hope it doesn't rain today. In all those scenarios, there's a smidgen of doubt. But in the Bible, hope is a confident assurance. And our hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ. He is our living hope. We have oftentimes quoted the words that 
Edward Mote wrote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I'll wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The only thing I can stand on is the calm assurance and the hope that I have in the accomplished work of my Lord Jesus Christ. So we put on this helmet of salvation. Once again, follow the analogy with the Apostle Paul. He said, put on a breastplate. It covered the intestines, the guts, the feeling of a person. Notice with him, he says, put on the helmet of salvation so that your salvation guards your very thoughts. Wouldn't that be great? If all of our thoughts went through the prism of Christ and him crucified, that if we saw our world through a Christian worldview, that our stinking thinking was corrected at Calvary, that we saw everything and everybody through the lenses of our salvation, oh, my friend, it would help some of our thinking. It would help some of our beliefs. It would correct some of our prejudice. It would correct some of our sin. If we just approach life by putting on the hope of our salvation as a helmet and faith and love as a breastplate upon our body. It would affect what we think. It would affect how we feel. Paul says we got to put this on. What's the implication? Sometimes we take it off. I wish I could stand in front of you and say, I'm always clothed in faith, love, and hope. But I'm not. There are times, apparently, that I put it off. I need to put on that beautiful biblical triad of faith, hope, and love. Ultimately, the apostle will say in a place like Romans chapter 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here in 1 Thessalonians, we find the formation of that beginning thought of the armor of God. It's a breastplate, it's a helmet. It'll fully be fleshed out in Ephesians chapter 6, but ultimately, it finds its fulfillment in Romans 13. Just put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about sanctification. I'm talking about discipleship. I'm talking about intentionally putting on Christ over our thoughts in our head, in our feelings, in our gut. That we put on Christ. And Paul says that we need to put him on. I would argue this morning that we need to put on Christ before we put on Fox News. We need to put on Christ before we put on AL.com. We need to put on Christ before we wake up and put on our Instagram. We need to put on Christ before we wake up and just allow some vile thoughts to rattle around in our empty brains. We need to intentionally put on Christ. I've been told what you've been taught. It takes about 21 days to develop a habit. And once a habit is developed that habit becomes second nature. You don't really have to think about it all that much. This is what the apostle's driving at. That you're so intentional, you are in Christ, your activity is Christ-like, that it becomes second nature that you put on Christ. That you put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. That you put on faith and love as a breastplate. That you put it on. For example, you have such a routine every morning. If I were to ask you, uh, did you put on deodorant today? Most of you would not even have to think about it. Now, there are a few of you, I can see on the expression on your face, uh uh-oh. But for most of you, you say, no, I don't have to think about it. It's part of my routine. 
I put it on at the same time every day at, at the same place in the routine of my habits. I, I put on my deodorant at the same time. Don't even have to check. Don't even, have to, don't even smell. Don't even have to think about it. Don't think about it because I know, I know that I put on deodorant. In the same way the apostle says that putting on Christ ought to be such a routine, such a habit, such an intentional effort that we just second nature put on Christ, put on faith, put on love, put on hope. We put it on. Friend, I'm telling you, if you know who you are, you know how to behave. Friend, I am telling you that your conduct reveals your character. And if you are in Christ, you have a unique identity. If you're in Christ, you have a unique activity. But third and finally, if you are in Christ, you have a unique destiny. Revisit with me verses 9, 10, and 11. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. So whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So encourage one another with these words. Friend, if you are in Christ, you have a unique destiny. You were not appointed for wrath. You were not appointed for hell. You were not appointed for destruction. Remember one of the questions that serves as the backdrop of this passage. That when the day of the Lord comes and when Jesus returns, will we who are in Christ, will we experience any of the destruction? Remember Paul said, they will receive the destruction, not we. They will not be able to escape. He doesn't write, we will not be able to escape. Because you were not destined for hell. It's not that we don't deserve hell. We're just not destined for hell. It's not that we don't deserve God's wrath. It's just we're not destined for God's wrath. It's not that we don't deserve the judgment of God. We're just not destined for the judgment of God. You say, how can you say that? How can you say, pastor, with a calm, confident assurance that we are not destined for hell? Because of those first four words of verse 10, he died for us. Friend, there are no sweeter four words that have ever been written in sacred scripture. He died for us. Because he died for us, we have come to him in faith. And we know that when we came to him in faith, we became in Christ. So that while we're in Christ, so that we are in Christ both now and forevermore. And our destiny is salvation, not condemnation. Our destiny is heaven, not hell. Now, Jesus came some 2,000 years ago, the perfect God-man. And on a faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century, Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam attached to his back. He made his way up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there the Roman soldiers stretched his arms wide, and they raised him high, and Jesus died an excruciating death. He died for us. It's not only that Jesus' death was excruciating. It's not only that it was painful. It's not only that it was something that you and I would not want to have to experience, but but Jesus died in our place. He died not only for us physically, but also spiritually. So in that few hour window on that faithful Friday, God Almighty, who's creator of time and space, poured into that few hour window and an eternity's worth of condemnation. A hell that you deserve, a hell that I deserve, was absorbed upon Jesus. The wrath that we should experience was taken and drunk by the Lord Jesus himself. He took that cup 
cup of wrath. He took that condemnation and he took it upon himself. It's not that our condemnation has not been paid. It's been paid by Jesus. It's not that our hell hasn't been experienced. It's been experienced by Jesus. It's not that we don't have any judgment for our sin. Our judgment for our sin was placed squarely on the shoulders of Jesus so that Jesus in the midst of that excruciating pain both physically and spiritually said my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when your sin debt was paid in full, Jesus said it is finished, which is to telestai, which means my debt has been paid. He died for us. So we sing, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. His name is Jesus, and Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. So we have a different destiny. It's not that we don't deserve hell. We're just not destined for it. Because it was appointed under the Son of Man to die for our sin. And he died for us. Everything about our faith is wrapped up in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And because we know he came the first time, and because we know he was a suffering servant who died in our place, we have the confident assurance that this Jesus is coming back. Friend, there are 7.8 billion people today on planet Earth living in 196 countries consisting of 650 ethnic groups speaking more than 6,500 languages known to man. Yet the Bible says there's only two types of people, those in Christ and those outside of Christ. Friend, that is the only distinction that carries an eternal significance. In Christ or out of Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you have a unique identity and you have unique activity and you have a unique particular destiny. But friend, if you're outside of Christ and, and you know that you are, I don't have to convince you, you know that you don't have a relationship with the Lord, you know that you never trusted Jesus as Savior, you know that you never asked him to forgive you of your sins and to begin eternal life with him. Friend, if, if you're on the outside, you don't have to stay that way. An outsider can become an insider simply by faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Whenever a person understands, trusts, believes, and knows that he died for us, one who had no faith now has faith. One who had no life now has life. One who was an outsider is now an insider. And the only thing that makes the difference and everything that makes the difference is a realization that he died for us. There are no 
four more sweeter words than those written in verse 10. He died for us. So now, encourage one another with these words. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. And Father, if there's somebody outside of Christ today, I pray that they will respond to your word by faith. For those that are in Christ, oh Lord Jesus, I pray that we will know that we will live out our identity and activity and destiny so that we know and a watching world knows that we belong to Jesus Christ. Have your way in this invitation. Help us to respond with obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.